uh, when one of the disciples of Jesus writes in the New Testament, Peter, he writes this in 1 Peter, he describes God this way, the God of all grace. I think that's a wonderful description of our God. The God of all grace. Not the God of some grace or limited grace or mediocre grace. It's the God of all grace. Just think of your week. There's probably been moments this week where you have needed some of the grace of God. Think of all the different ways that could play itself out. The the grace of strength from God. Anyone need that this week? The grace of comfort. The grace of guidance. The grace of peace or of hope or of assurance or of acceptance, of, or of joy, or of love. What grace have you needed this week? And when Peter declares God is a God of all grace, what he's declaring is that whatever you've needed from him, needed to receive, he has enough of it to give. He's not running out as you think of what you need and the grace that you've needed this week from God. All the grace that you need is available. But now just think of that, even as you're thinking of the area that you need grace, then think of the people who are sitting around you. The auditorium's full. We've got people online. Think of all the different grace that they have needed. You may have needed the grace of strength, but someone else has needed the grace of comfort. Someone else has needed joy or love or assurance. And God has all the grace that is needed in all of those areas. It's not like he, you know, said to Harbor this week, hey, a lot of grace was needed, I ran out. So those of you, you know, whose last name starts with T and on, sorry, you know, you're not getting any grace. We'll start at the end, we'll start at the beginning of the alphabet, we'll start with T next week, and you can get some next week. Now he's the God of all grace. He's got plenty. Or it's not like there was a a run on peace this week. Right, People needed the grace of peace, and God just says to you near the end of the week, sorry, peace was really popular. I've ran out. I don't have any more to give. You know, if you're looking for hope, got lots of that left. It wasn't as popular. But peace, I'm limited. No, he is the God of all grace in every area and all that we need. What a wonderful description of our God. We could just pause here even now and just sing and worship and say, God, thank you that you are the God of all grace. And it means you freely give it. That's what grace is. It's freely given. It's not earned. It's just given. And so then the question that I want to answer this morning, it is absolutely true that God is the God of all grace. Then the question is, how do we actually receive that? If God has all of this grace, willing and ready to give, how do we receive it? How do we position ourselves to receive what he has to offer? And so as you're thinking of that, what do we do? What means has he given us to receive the grace that he has for us? Let me just give this illustration. Let me move us out of our context into another context as we seek to answer that question. Imagine this morning a a village in India. God's doing a wonderful work in India. Hundreds of thousands of people are trusting in Christ there. But imagine a village in India where someone goes from another village and they go and they share the gospel. And there in that village, maybe 15, 20 people at the most believe in Christ. There's 
couple of families, and in one family, the head of the household, the dad, he believes, and the family believes as well. And so the guy who's gone and shared the gospel, he baptizes that one man, and, and then he sort of instructs them a little bit, and then he says, I got to go, but I'll be back in a month, but you guys meet together every week. Gather together, and here's a Bible, and keep growing in your faith. And so then, this little group begins this planning to get together for the first time, and they call you on the phone. And they say, hey, we need a lot of grace this week from God, right? The village is not happy, right? Some of us are being persecuted. We're fearing for our lives. Our homes could be burned down. We could be run out of town. Our family has ostracized us. We need a lot of grace. What do we do to receive this grace? How do we gather together? How do we get the grace that is needed? Now, let me mention some things here what you're not going to say, and all of these things are good things, but you're not going to say, do you have like a coffee bar with a cafe area? Because that would really help you, you know, and they're going to say, no, no, we don't have any of that, you know, or, and wasn't the band great this morning? Did so well. But you're not going to say, do you have a drummer and a violinist and a bass player and some great musicians, right? If you had all that, right? Or do you have carpeting and fancy seats or comfortable seats, hopefully, unless you're sitting out in the aisle, sorry about that, but, uh, you have comfortable seats. Now, again, uh, all of those things matter. I'm not diminishing them. We have been blessed by them this morning. And this group that gathered would think about seating and maybe serving some food afterwards or, you know, getting together. All of those things would matter for them as well. But what you wouldn't communicate is, sorry, you know, you don't have those things. You're not going to be able to get as much graces from God as we are here today. You're not going to say, hey, you should just come over to North America. You know, we have access to more grace because we have these things. What are you going to say? How are they going to receive the grace? Well, this question has been answered throughout history in what we call catechisms. Let me just choose one because it was the clearest. In 1689, the Baptist Confession of Faith wrote this, and you'll see it on the screen. The grace of faith is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also and by the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, it is increased and strengthened. What have we said throughout history? What are the means by which we receive the grace that God has to give? It's defined here. It's a little bit wordy, but through the Word, through the Scriptures, we receive what God has for us. What are the other means? Baptism, Lord's Supper, prayer, public reading of Scripture, singing. These are the means that God has given his church to receive all the grace that he has to offer. And so if you were talking to your friend on the phone, you wouldn't need to talk about seating arrangements or hospitality afterwards. You could say, here's what you do. Gather people together. Sing a song. Pray. Open up scripture. Read it aloud discover the truth of it together. Someone in that group, since there's only one baptized, wants to get baptized, baptize them. And you say, would that be enough? Really? We, and you'd say, that's all you need. It's all you need. God will work through those means to deliver to your gathering on that day all the grace that is necessary. Isn't that wonderful? See the, the great wisdom of God that in any time, in any place, no matter the resource level or what's that, God has given every gathering of people all the means they need to discover and obtain all the grace that he has. 
We don't need something new or flashy. When we get discouraged or downtrodden, we can just look to these ordinary means, these simple things, as ways of receiving the the grace that God has for us. So my heart and prayer for this morning is generally to elevate these simple things, these ordinary things, and remind us of them, all of them. But then specifically, because of where we are in our journey through Luke, to elevate one specific of these means, and that is the Lord's table, communion. Just to elevate this means in all of our minds as a way that God has given us to receive his grace. So my whole message this morning is a setup for what we're going to take at the end, take communion and the Lord's Supper. And after I'm done, we'll pause for a minute or two to reflect on what I've said and prepare to take the elements. And I hope as we prepare for that pause that you in that moment are saying, this is the moment I'm, I need God, I need grace. I need you to speak to me and give me perspective and help and hope. And as that moment, as we come to it, you'll be prepared to receive the grace through these elements and through this ordinance as we practice it. So that's where we're headed today. We're in Luke chapter 22, so if you'd grab your Bibles and open those up, and I'm going to read that passage of Scripture in a moment. As you're doing that, let me introduce myself. My name's Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here into Harbor Online. Welcome now or at another time, and pray you'll be strengthened and encouraged this morning as we open up the Word of God. What I want to do now is just read the passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about this morning, and it's in Luke chapter 7, or sorry, Luke 22, verse 7 through verse 20. And let me just read that out loud now, and then we'll talk about this, what Christ has given us, this means of grace. Then, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take, drink, and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So we come today to this ordinance, this Christian rite that is an outward symbol of an inward reality. And I just want to spend some time, and when you came in, you got a handout sheet, and there'll be some slides as well, just working through so we can understand the depth and the magnitude of this. My heart is just to elevate this all in our minds, the significance and the value of it this morning. So you see the outline you have. You'll see on the back side that I've borrowed some of this outline, but I just thought it was an excellent way for us to both understand and raise the value of the Lord's Supper. You see there at the top of the outline, 
Just a comparison to begin with. Both communion and baptism are ordinances, Christian rites, things that we do externally that represent an internal reality. And so as we compare those two, the statement reads this, baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ and his church. The Lord's Supper celebrates our continued identification with Christ and his church. And you may not have thought of these two things being disconnected, but both represent our identification with Christ. Saying, Jesus, I'm a follower of yours. I've trusted in you and I'm following you. Baptism is the beginning of that journey, the initial identification, and then communion is the ongoing, the continual uh, identification. Think of it this way. Uh, Baptism is like the wedding ceremony where you declare your vows. In baptism, we say Jesus is Lord. And then communion is like the anniversary celebration where you remember and mark the saying of your vows. Or another way you could think of communion, it could, in many ways, this is probably a better description other than the frequency of it, it could be the wedding ceremony and then the renewal of the vows where we gather and recommit to the vows that we made earlier in our wedding time. That's the comparison between baptism and communion. So let me just answer then, you see in your notes, some questions about this time as we then prepare to partake of it. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who is this for? Believers share in the work of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper. So this is an outward identification of something that's happened in our hearts. So if you have trusted in Christ, turned from your sin, made him Lord and King of your life, if that has happened internally, then this time is for you. It's for all who have put their faith in Christ and known that he has given them new life, regenerated them, the the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternity with Christ. That's who this time is for. We share all believers in that. This morning, if you know you're in that category, if you just said, yep, I know that's me, I know I'm a follower of Christ, let me just add a second category. If you know you're in that category and have not yet been baptized, then can I just sort of mark the anomaly that you're existing in? It's like you've sort of gone, you're celebrating the anniversary, you're renewing your vows, but yet you have not yet been to the wedding ceremony and declared your vows. And so if you know for sure that you are a follower of Christ and have not been baptized, I would just encourage you, be obedient to Jesus. Declare that publicly. Identify with him through baptism. Get baptized. Then the second part of this is you see in your notes there, believers, this is for communion, but unbelievers look in and see the work of Christ as they watch the Lord's Supper. We ask that unbelievers, and what the Bible says is not partake of this. It's called fencing the table. We try to do that every time we partake of it. And again, if you know that you are not a follower of Christ, then this time is not for you. You can say, well, I've always done it, or I've grown up in church, or this is my routine. That's not really uh, the issue. The issue is internally, have you trusted in Christ and turned from your sin? And if you've not done that, then we would invite you to do that today. If you're unsure where you stand in those things, we would invite you to connect with the person that you came with or someone here on our staff. We would love to walk with you to begin to figure out all that it means to be a follower of Christ. So that's who should participate. Second one then is where should we have the Lord's Supper? 
And in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives a lot more instructions on this, let me just name off the verses in case you want to look them up after. Verses 18, 20, and 33, Paul says, when you come together, when you meet together, celebrate this Lord's Supper. And so simply, we would say this, this time, where should we take it? In the gathering of the church. Think, think back to our little church there in India. You know, they're getting together for the first week and they're going to sing maybe and pray and read some scripture. Maybe someone gets baptized. But as that little gathering continues to get together, when are we going to say they begin to become a church, begin to look like a church? Well, it, it would certainly be on those moments where they get together and they take the Lord's Supper together, where they have some juice and some bread or whatever they can figure out. And they gather together and express their commitment to Christ and commitment to each other. It's that picture that helps us see what this is designed for. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the gathering of the church together, partaking together. And then the next question, when should we have the Lord's Supper? You'll see a couple of verses come up on the side screen. The first there is when Paul was in Troas and Luke records in the book of Acts that on the first day of the week they came together to break bread. It's this idea, it's almost like this idea of breaking bread. They were coming together on the first day of the week. It almost implies they were doing it weekly. And then you see in Acts 2.46, it reads this, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. If again, breaking bread there, it could mean that they were doing it every day in their homes. And so certainly what we see in the New Testament is an argument for frequency. So we could say, take it regularly. I've simply said in the notes, take it often. The command is to take of the Lord's Supper often. And we're reminded of that, that this time matters because it's one of the means that God has given us to receive his grace. Next question is, how should we understand this? And this is really important. There's a lot of nuance here, but I just briefly want to cover the one misunderstanding and then the proper biblical understanding. A traditional misunderstanding is that this involves a change of substance that results in salvation. This is often what we find in the Roman Catholic Church. The theological word for it is transubstantiation, where the teaching is that these elements actually become the body and bread of Christ. There's a metaphysical change in them. Christ is present in the elements. You might say, why does this even matter? Here's why it matters. Because if Christ is present in the elements, to then receive communion is to receive Christ, which is then to obtain forgiveness, and it is to receive or obtain salvation. If all of those go together, then it can be the teaching that I take communion, I'm receiving Christ, I'm receiving forgiveness, I'm receiving salvation. And so it's very important that this, we understand, that this does not result in salvation. These elements do not earn you salvation. This is very important because I'm asked this question quite often. Maybe not so much in regards to communion, but in regards to other things. Where people think, if I have to do this, do I have to do this to be a Christian? If I get baptized, does that mean I've earned salvation? Does that mean I'm in? Or maybe in the other way, if I don't pray or don't read my Bible, do I lose my salvation? And what we're marking here in this time is this is a symbol of God's grace. The grace of salvation. And salvation is a free gift. 
We don't earn it. We don't obtain it. We don't get it by partaking of communion. It's just a totally free gift, and all we have to do is receive it. This is what the Protestant Reformation was about. By grace alone, through faith alone. These are just merely symbols of our inward trust in Christ. This does not earn us salvation. It does not result in salvation. So what's the proper biblical understanding? This is a symbolic meal that reflects salvation and provides a particularly fruitful opportunity to meet with Christ. I'll talk more about the symbolism as we move into the why section, but this provides a particularly fruitful opportunity for you to meet with Christ. This is the means he has given us. Think of in all the New Testament, of all the things we're instructed about in a church gathering time, this time gets more instruction than any other. It's like he's saying, this really matters. This is a way, this is a time where you can receive the grace that you need from me. Just think about how wonderful this is. Christ is saying to you, Christ is saying to you, come to my table. You're invited to come and sit at my table. And I love hearing the stories of hospitality around Harbor, how we're each other's homes, and it's wonderful to be invited to someone's home to be able to sit at their table. But this is so much better. This is Jesus himself saying, pull up a chair, pull up a chair and sit at my table. And what makes this even so much more amazing is you think back to our rebellion. Starting with Adam and Eve, the serpent comes along, Satan comes along to Adam and Eve and says, take and eat of this fruit. And what do they do? They take and eat and they rebel against God. They go their own way and humankind has been going their own way and rebelling against God ever since. That's our state, rebels against God. We've we've turned our back on him. But then what does God do in that reality? He sends Jesus Christ to the earth to fix the problem that we could never fix ourselves. We can't earn it. We can't obtain salvation. We just need the grace of God. And what does Jesus say in this time? He says, come, take and eat. He reverses what happened there in Genesis 3, where we took and eat and rebelled against God, but now it's come to my table and take and eat freely of the grace that I offer. We've rebelled against him, all of us, but he invites us to come and receive his grace, his salvation. That's the proper understanding of this time. And then why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why does this matter? You see four reasons there. The first is to remember. And as I studied this week, I learned the word remember. We think of the word remember like recall, like bring back to mind. Actually, what I learned was the biblical word for remember is actually stronger than that. If you think of what's the opposite of the word remember, it's dismember, dismember, to pull apart. If you dismember something, you're pulling it apart. And so remembering is bringing things back together, grafting it together, sewing it together, fusing it back together, letting it become a part of us. And so what Jesus is saying in this time is, do this in remembrance of me. Here's what happens in between communion times. We are dismembered by the world. The work of Christ is pulled out of us. It's separated from us. It goes all different ways. And he's saying, come back and remember me and pull it all back together 
Remember where you stand with me. Remember all that I've done on the cross. And then what are the two things we remember? The body of Jesus Christ. Certainly his birth, his life, but ultimately his suffering, his death. We remember his affliction for us. This is a real moment in history. A real suffering Jesus on a cross who is afflicted for us. It's not just an idea or a concept. It is a moment, a crucifixion, and we remember that during this time. And then we remember the body of Jesus crucified, but we also remember the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so in the Old Testament, a lamb would be brought and it would be slaughtered. And everyone sort of knew that that lamb didn't, you know, it didn't forgive the sin, but it pointed to something else. It was a symbol of something that was to come. And now we come to this moment in Luke where we read the story of this Last Supper, this First Communion. They're eating this Passover meal together. And you notice there was bread there, there was juice, there was a, a cup, but there's no lamb at this Passover meal. No lamb is there. And if the disciples were to say, Jesus, every time we eat the Passover, there's always a lamb. Where's the lamb? What would Jesus say? I am the lamb. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There was a lamb there at that first communion. It was Jesus himself. And what he's saying is everything is pointing to me and what, what, what I will do on the cross. I am dealing with sin and death permanently, and this next 24 hours is a night and day like no other. We remember the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sin. So we remember those two things. And then secondly, we reflect. And what do we reflect on? Firstly, our own sin. Let me just read these verses again from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about what it means to reflect. He talks about everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And what was happening, you see there, is some weren't, and they were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. And then Paul says in verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What does fallen asleep mean? It means died. So Paul writes to a real church there in the city of Corinth. And he says, this is serious. Some of you have dishonored this time. You've dishonored it. And because of it, some of you are weak and sick. And some of you have even died. We come to this time with great seriousness. There's nothing casual about it. We should come with deep confession. If we cling to our sin, it dishonors this ceremony but it also dishonors the body and blood of Christ. We're treating lightly his gracious sacrifice for us. So we reflect on our sin. But then secondly, we reflect on his promises. Even as, you, even as we do that first one, we reflect on our own sin. You can feel the heaviness and the weight of your deeds, your actions, your words, your thoughts. It sort of comes in on you. But now we reflect on the promises of God, the promises of God in this time. Think back to the first Passover there in Egypt. Moses was to tell the people that the angel of death was coming into the camp. And in order for the people to be saved, they needed to slaughter a lamb and 
put the blood over the door. And the Israelites did that, and the Bible tells us that some Egyptians did that as well. In faith, they slaughtered a lamb, and they put its blood over the door. And when the angel of death came, it passed over that home. It saw the blood on the door and passed over. That's why it's called the Passover. The the house was passed over. And that's what we reflect on this time, that our sin has been passed over. The blood of the Lamb has covered us. That's the great promise of God demonstrated through both that first Passover and through take partaking of this. And then we come, as we reflect on that promise, we feast. We feast. This is not a physical feast, we know that, but this is a spiritual feast. It's got great nourishment for us. What do we feast on? The forgiveness of Christ. This is our participation. When you take and eat, you're saying, this is for me. All the benefits of Christ's death, they belong to me. My sin has been passed over, and I'm taking and eating, and I am feasting on the fact that I am forgiven. And then not only that, we feast on the faithfulness of God. Some of you maybe need to hear this this morning. We mark that in this time, Jesus has invited all who are in Christ to come to his table. He's passed over our sin. He says, come, I invite you. This is vivid. This is visual. This is the picture that Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. So individually and personally, he wants to say to all who are in Christ, as you come, find reassurance of my great love for you. I am faithful to you. I am faithful to you. Even if this week you have not been faithful to me, I am faithful to you. Know that I love you. That's the second reason we come and we reflect on these great promises. And then the third reason we come, why? Is to renew. To renew three different things you see there. First, our commitment to Christ. When you take these elements, you're saying, I'm trusting in Jesus. I've turned from my sin. Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my King. You're my Savior. I am following you. Think of it in these terms. If you weren't a Christian taking of these elements, you'd say, if I wasn't a Christian, I would become one right now. I'm in all over again. Or if you've, if you've been baptized, you would take the elements and say, if I had the opportunity to get baptized, again, I would, but I don't need to, but I'm taking of this time to declare again my commitment to Christ. Every time we partake, we get to declare our commitment to him all over again, affirm our faith in him. Secondly, we declare our commitment to each other. If you're united with Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, then you're also united with everyone else who is united to Jesus Christ. We all come together, and I love this table back here, but it's not big enough for all of us. We would need a long table, but that's the picture of it. We come together all one in Christ, one loaf, one cup. The symbolism is we come and we identify with each other. We commit ourselves to each other, to love and to care and be unified together. And isn't it wonderful? This is the symbol that we partake of today. It's great to see Harbor. We have a growing diversity. And praise God for that. People born in all different places of the world, different languages, different ethnicities. It's wonderful to see. And this is a declaration that we come together. What we have in common in Christ is greater than any differences that we may have. 
This week I was out knocking on doors and I I'd never met this young lady. She was delightful. She was from uh, Trinidad. So she's, and she was so friendly and happy. We were out knocking on doors, praying for people and sharing the gospel. And I said to her about three-thirds of the way through, I said, it's so nice being with you. You know, you're just so friendly and happy and everyone's been nice and friendly to us. Thank you for that. And, and she said, oh, no, thank you. She said, Jeff, I think the other reason people are friendly and happy is they're curious, right? She said, you know, I'm a woman, I'm young and I'm black and you're old and white. And, <laughs> and, uh, and she said, people are just wondering, how did the two of us get together on this street? And I said, oh, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And that was some of the, the joy in that time of saying what has brought us together is Christ. This is what we declare in this moment, that we are one family. And then third, we declare our commitment to the mission of God. Jesus, or Paul writes in verse 26 there, 1 Corinthians 11, that when we partake this, it is a proclamation. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we take this, you're proclaiming. You're saying, this is something that I want to shout out. And so it's interesting just to note here how the mission of God is embedded in everything. Jesus is saying, this is important. So when you come, it's a proclamation, but continue to commit yourself to proclaiming that message, both as you partake, but then ongoingly, it matters. This is a part of my great commission to share these words. And then lastly, we remember, we reflect, we renew, but we also rejoice. This is serious, undoubtedly, yes, but it is also a celebration. Christ has set us free. Think back to the first Passover. They were slaves in Egypt for so many years, and now they have been set free. They have been released from the slavery that they were in. And this is the picture that Christ gives us. We were slaves to sin, in bondage to sin. But yet Christ comes and through the work on the cross, he sets us free from sin, sets us free from the enemy of death. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. You can say no to sin. You can be different because he has set you free. And that's what we celebrate here in these moments. And then lastly, we celebrate that he is coming back. The wedding supper of the Lamb you saw that there was a time frame when we read in Luke, one day we will share this time with Jesus, with all believers throughout all human history. It will be quite a day because there will be no more pain, no more emptiness, no more sorrow. We will be with Christ and all who are in Christ. And here's the good news. Christ is going to get us there. He's going to get us there for all who are in him. This is a foretaste of the great banquet that is to come. And what a joy it will be on that day to celebrate the Lord's table with him. So that's why we take this time to remember, to reflect, to renew, and to celebrate, to rejoice in our hearts. I hope you're ready to partake of this time and spend some moments even in quiet just to reflect on and let yourself receive the grace that Christ might want to give you today. Let me just read one last quote. You'll see it on the screen. Here's what it says. Let us understand, therefore, that this time is a medicine for poor, spiritually sick people. Yet we do not doubt that he is the heavenly bread that feeds and nourishes us for eternal life. So let us be grateful for the infinite goodness of our Savior, who spreads out all the riches and goods on his table to distribute them to us. Who is this time for? It is for poor, poor spiritually sick people. 
And when you're in, if you're in that category today, then we come to the cross. We receive the grace that he has for us. And as the quote reminds us, we can receive the infinite goodness of God. It's all grace. We just come and receive it. So let's, let me invite you to do this. We're just going to play a little bit of music. Let me give you about a minute just to reflect on what I've said. Maybe something has really stuck in your heart today and you just want to pause and say, God, I just want to receive what you want to give me today. I need your grace today. So let's take a moment and do that and then uh, stay in your seats. Then I'll come back and we'll ref- I'll explain how we're going to actually partake of the elements. So God, we are grateful, we worship you, that you're of a God of all grace. God, we admit we need much grace. And we thank you for these elements, this Lord's table, this means, this ordinary simple means that you have given us to receive the grace and the help that we need. So God, even in these next moments as we partake, Lord, we just pray, Lord, we want to receive from you, so speak to each of our hearts. Pray this in Christ's name, amen going to invite you now in a moment to come forward to take the elements just come to the table closest to you or the table that's open there's a cup there's a cup of bread and a cup of grape juice take both those elements and then return to your seat and then after everyone is seated Wally and Austin are going to come and lead us in the taking of the elements and uh, so let's uh, let us come now and receive those elements to wake up with the rising sun and not be held down by the weight of all the things I've done what reason do I have to feel this hope instead of hurt how can it be I don't receive the judgment I deserve wave upon wave of grace upon Of grace upon grace upon grace How can you see me at my worst And still say I am loved 
Before we take the bread, oh, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer together? Oh, Lord, we just come together uh, as your church to remember, Lord. Remember what you did for us. And, uh, and Lord, not just to simply just recall um, some facts, Lord, but to, to be changed, to be transformed, to be reminded of exactly what you did for us, Lord, to remember deeply the sacrifice you made. So, Lord, we thank you. Uh, and we remember your body uh, on the cross, Lord. You were beaten and you were whipped and you suffered for us, Lord. And we also remember your blood that was shed as a result of this, Lord. And we just thank you for this. We thank you for what you did for us on that cross. And Lord, we, we do this together. We take this communion together to proclaim your death until you come. So we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's take the bread together. Will you join me as I pray regarding the cup? Father God, we thank you for your word, 
for the message that pointed us to the all-sufficient, perfect Son of God who gave his life for us. Well, I'm reminded of the words of Charles Wesley when he composed the song that said, We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus left his Father's throne above and emptied himself of all but love and bled for our helpless estate. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. It found out us. We are undeserving. We are unworthy. Yet we rest completely in Christ, in his death and resurrection, for our hope and our salvation. We thank you for the abundant life he promised us. And he set us free. And he's coming back again. And so this morning, Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your love, your amazing love that you've lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And we praise you that that's what we are by grace. Would you keep us? Would you protect us? Would you fill us with joy and hope for your glory? We pray this in your name. Amen. In the scripture that Pastor Jeff read for us earlier, he said, after Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks, and then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for me. So let's drink the cup together with thanksgiving. Isn't it wonderful that Christ gave us these simple means, these ordinary means? We can just pause and reflect and think on him and receive the grace that he needs for us. We have this grace to do together, but then this week, if you need more grace, you've got the word of God, you've got prayer. Again, we've got these simple, ordinary means where we can connect and receive from Christ. As I do every week, let me just wrap up our time together before we ask you to stand and we say four words and dismiss uh, two things. One is this Wednesday night, just a reminder, as I said earlier, our responding biblically to abortion. Our, my hope is that we would just know the heart of Christ and the worldview of God as we would navigate this topic. So please join me on Wednesday night. And then secondly, after we dismiss the service, if you could all find someone maybe you don't know and just ask them what their name is and ask them how long they've been coming to Harbor. Uh, lots of new people here every week and we just love everyone to be greeted by at least one person. So if everyone would do that, that would be wonderful. Let me invite you to stand. We'll read. We've been reading Luke's Great Commission, and you can see how he ties these themes together, what really matters to him. And here's what Luke writes. He says, Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and on repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So with that commission from Luke, Harbor, we are sent. <laughs>